So, we're, we're in a, a little series over the summer in the book of Titus, and we've arrived at Titus chapter 2, verse 11. So let's just read from there. For, actually, that's a very important word, we'll come back to that. For, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what's good. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Don't let anyone despise you. Uh, I'm sorry if this is a, a crushing disappointment to some people, but I'm afraid gardening is just not my thing at all. Um, when we first moved into our house about 10 years ago, it had the most immaculate lawn with not a single weed in it. And then it had these flower beds with kind of different sized shrubs of different colours and lots of flowers. And they'd obviously thought about it because for the first year, things, oh bless you, things kept appearing, you know, different colours. And, and, and it was a really beautiful thing. And then within about two years of us living there, it was basically, there were parts of jungle and patches of mud. That was kind of how it's been ever since. And we're the only house in our road where the grass on the front garden often goes almost to the knee. Uh, and um, Taryn always says that not only is our front garden devaluing our house, it's devaluing most of the other houses in the street. So I have got literally no idea about gardening, but I do know this, that if you want to grow a particular fruit, then you have to plant the right seed. And it seems to me that in a nutshell, that is the Apostle Paul's understanding of what it means to follow Jesus and discipleship and growth and development as Christians is that if we want to grow fruit in our lives and we want to look anything like Jesus, then we have to plant the right seed. And the seed that Paul always plants throughout his letters is truth. He plants truth into, into their lives and uh, then he tells them the kind of fruit that you would expect to grow. And he does that all the time. So you see it, for example, in the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters of Ephesians is just truth, truth, truth all the time. Stuff like uh, Ephesians chapter 1. He's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be blameless and holy in his sight. Stuff like that which should just kind of blow your mind if you think about it for too long. Or Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. And then it goes on to talk about how we're seated with Christ in heavenly realms and all that stuff. It's just brilliant. And then Ephesians chapter 3 talks about how God is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. So these great seeds of truth that he's sowing into their lives. And then chapter 4 verse 1 is the kind of, therefore... This is what I would expect the fruit of all that truth to look like. And so he goes on for the rest of Ephesians to talk about um, 
the fruit being humility and gentleness and unity and maturity and clean speech and sexual purity and faithful marriages and loving families and spiritual strength and lives that are just kind of dripping with prayer. And he says that is the fruit that you would expect from all of that amazing truth about who God is and what God has done for us. He does it in Romans as well, in Colossians. Just, you know, you see in Romans, the first 11 chapters is just chunks and chunks of truth. And then there's the word, therefore, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, in view of all of that, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. You see, so he does it all the time. It's like, here are the seeds of truth. And if we receive truth and we believe truth, and we allow truth to kind of find, you know, put down roots in our lives, then out of all of that truth comes fruit of Christ-likeness and godliness and, and humility and all of that kind of stuff. Well, in Titus, Paul does the same as that, only round the other way. And so what he starts off with is the fruit. In fact, what he starts off with in chapter 1, verse 10 to 16 is... Do you know what? There's so much rotten fruit around. That's how he starts. Just so much rotten. So, much, so many Christians who have such disgusting behavior. And it's like, it's, it's like this fruit is just rancid and rotten. And there are maggots and there are flies and all that kind of stuff. So, for example, in verse 15, he says about these Christians who are just rotten. Both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God. But by their actions, they deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing any good. Crikey, you never want to hear anyone say anything like that about you, do you? It's like totally rotten. And his concern is the world is hungry, just so hungry for fruit. And so his, his solution to that is just calling out to the church in Crete saying, just Bear, you know, have lives that are bearing huge amounts of fruit. Just make sure that your lives are just full of juicy, ripe, mouth-watering, gorgeous, tasty fruit. And the kinds of fruit that he's talking about is, you know, it talks about older men being godly and humble and, and all of those things. And older women being, setting a great example and, and husbands and wives just loving one another and being faithful to one another and loving their children and all those kinds of things it's like live lives you know in a world where there's so much rotten horrible stuff the call on us as the church is to live lives of beautiful fruit and in fact if you look just immediately before the passage that I read in verse Um, 10 of chapter 2 it says so that in every way they'll make the teaching about God our saviour attractive and so the question that I want to ask today is how do we grow how, how do we grow about how do we go about growing that kind of fruit in our lives that other people see as attractive you know so that wherever you are people are saying my goodness I don't know what it is about them but being a Christian obviously works for them You know, maybe I should consider it because they have got all of that brilliant, juicy fruit and I I really want some of that. The question is, how do we go about growing that kind of fruit? Well, of course, Paul's answer is, you need to plant the right kind of seeds. You need to have the right kind of truth in your lives and make sure that that truth is really finding root in your life. And that's why, verse 11, 11, 
of chapter 2 starts with the word for. So it's kind of the opposite way round of the therefore, you know. Here's the seed, therefore the fruit. This time round it's the other way. Here's the fruit because here's the truth. Here are the seeds. And the first truth that he's going to tell us is this. Salvation is offered to all people. It's not just us. I know that sounds like the most obvious thing in the world, but, but God is not interested in only saving us. He wants to rescue everyone. Uh, a couple of years ago, it was the centenary, wasn't it, of the sinking of the Titanic. And over 1,500 people died when the Titanic sunk. Why? Because there weren't enough lifeboats. There wasn't enough space on the lifeboats for everyone who was on the boat. There were 3,300 spaces on the boat and just over 1,100 spaces on the lifeboats. So there wasn't room for everyone. That's not how it is with the church. There's room for everyone. And in fact, you can follow the thread of those words, all people, all the way through Scripture And it's like God is repeating again and again. This isn't just for you. You know, Abraham receives the call of God. I'm going to make you into a great nation. You need to leave behind your family and your father's household and your nation and all that. Go to a place I'll show you. And there I'll bless you. And through you, all people on earth will be blessed. And then you can find it in the Psalms as well. Psalm 65 verse 2. You who answer prayer to you all people will come. And then in the prophets, in Isaiah, Isaiah says, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. And then Jesus, of course, John chapter 12, he stands up and he says this, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then Paul, again and again, in, in, the, in the letters of the New Testament, is just reminding people as often as he can, this isn't just for you, this is for everyone else. Romans 5, 18. One righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. 1 Timothy 2. The man Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all people. And of course, all of it, all of that kind of all people, all people, all people, all people, is all kind of pointing towards the great, Finale, the grand finale of the whole of Scripture and the whole of time. Revelation chapter 7. A great multitude, more than any can count, people of every tribe and tongue and language and nation uh, gathering before the throne and singing out, salvation belongs to our God and all of that stuff. Do you see the point, the whole purpose of salvation is, is that it's for everyone. Our problem is that most people we live near have no idea that there is an offer of salvation, an offer of rescue available for them. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all the people in your office and all the people on your oil rig and all the people in your university classroom, including the lecturer, and all the people in the hospital and all the people in your school and so on. The grace of God is offering salvation to everyone. And Paul wants the church in Crete and therefore the church in, where are we, Hilton Community Centre, to receive that truth. God's salvation is for everyone, not just for us. We really, uh, as a church, need to hear that. 
And God has been telling us that again and again in all kinds of ways through the scriptures and prophetic words and all of that. That we can't only be a church that's just like, you know, the trendiest church around or the, you know, the church that other people go to when they get upset with the church that they were at before and all of that stuff. We have to be a church that communicates that God is offering salvation to people who don't currently know. So that's the first thing. Uh, Salvation is offered to all people. Second thing, God will help us to change. Verse 12. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Um, About five years ago, something like that, my mum moved house from the, the home that we'd lived in as kids. And so she came across all of my school reports and she said, would I like them? And I was like, yeah, I'd love to read my school report. Anyway, I sat there reading them for a little while. And then Taryn was like, that's my wife, Taryn. She said, you look really depressed. What on earth is the matter? And I said, do you know that I'm, I'm coming to the crushing realization that at the age of 12, that my teachers had identified all of the flaws in my character that I've been wrestling with for the last 20 years. 25 years. You know, at the age of 12, I could always say an inappropriate thing at an inappropriate moment. That was my gift, you know. And I, I uh, struggled so much with, with self-control and self-discipline and just getting on with things. And there were all kinds of insecurities and all of that. I was, I was a rubbish Christian as a 15-year-old, and that was there as well. You know, all of the things that I've been wrestling with my entire life were there. And I found myself just saying, will I never change? Will I, will I ever be able to change? Will I, will I always be this person? And if you're a normal Christian, then probably you have those kind of thoughts too. Will I ever be able to change? Will I always wrestle with the same things? And the great news of this truth today is that God's grace teaches us to change. In actual fact, it happens in two ways. You'll see it there. First of all, God's grace teaches us to say no. So it's like a, it teaches us in a, what's negative. Very difficult to say no often, isn't it? But God's grace teaches us to say no. I will not sleep with you until we're married. And if you'll never propose to me, then you can bog off. And gra- God's grace teaches us to not click on that link or to have that extra drink. God's grace teaches us to not revisit those addictions that we have struggled with. God's grace teaches us to not give way to bitterness or resentment or anger in a way that's destructive. God's grace teaches us to say, no, I'm not doing that. Even if I did it yesterday, I don't have to do it today because God will teach me to say, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. So that's the negative part. But also God's grace teaches us, what does it say? To, oh, I wish I could find it. Uh, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. In other words, God's grace teaches me that it's possible to reach for and attain the kind of life that God is calling me to. I can live a life that has more righteousness today than it did yesterday. I can please God more today than I did yesterday because God's grace is teaching me to do that. But here's the thing. I was in French lessons for five years 
and I didn't learn really a, a single word of French. And there wasn't a problem with my teacher. My teacher was a good French teacher. There wasn't a problem with the lessons. They had good content and they, you know, they were well thought through. The problem was I was a rubbish student. I didn't learn my lessons. I didn't cooperate with the teacher. I didn't apply myself to the teaching. And actually, it doesn't say, God's grace will help me to transform in an instant and I'll never struggle with anything ever again. It says, God's grace teaches me to say no and to reach for righteousness. And I, I guess that means that it's a process that I have to cooperate with. God's grace makes it possible for me to change. The third thing, we all await a blessed hope or a blessed hope. Verse 13, we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hands up if you were a, um, a scout, a boy, a boy scout. Yeah, come on. Uh, I used to absolutely love it, mainly because of the kind of adventures that you could have and especially because you could stay up past your usual bedtime. That was kind of what happened with the scouts. You know, you could go away on camps and stuff like that where your mum wasn't watching over your shoulder and, and so you lived a different kind of life. Um, my favourite event of the whole year was the night hike where uh, there were four of you, you strapped your rucksacks on, you filled your rucksacks with marathon bars and space invaders and flying saucers and stuff like that and then you had a torch and off you would go into the into the darkness and uh, have all these challenges to do along the way but there'd always come a point and every night hike where you'd be stumbling your way through a field in the pitch black and you'd have really no clue where you are and then uh, suddenly on the horizon there's like this orange glow and then from that orange glow, suddenly there are bursts of light coming through the mist. And before you knew it, anything that was previously just dark and incomprehensible and totally unclear was suddenly illuminated and it was absolutely clear where you should go. And in this passage, Paul talks about how we're in between two dawns. In, in fact, he uses the word epiphany in Greek. We, uh, it's the word that is in verse 11 and verse 13 it's the word appear. It's literally the word epiphany. And the first appearing is an epiphany of grace. He's talking about when Jesus came 2,000 years ago and laid down his life for us, cleansed us. It's kind of that kind of language that it's using. But we're awaiting a second epiphany, a second appearing. The first one was an epiphany of grace. The second one is an epiphany of glory is what it says in verse 13. It's the, it's the return of the king, to use a little bit of uh, hobbit, not hobbit language. Uh, well, anyway, you know what I mean. It's the return of the king. You know, life can be really painful, and it can often feel like the whole of the world is oriented against us, and, and we're at war, even with our own souls. But the good news is that God has not left us without hope that there'll be a return, an appearing of God in his glory, Jesus the King in his glory. And when he comes, he'll fix it all. He'll bring justice, for example. I don't know how you've been responding in your own heart to all this stuff in Iraq. Hopefully, did you say earlier on about the offering we're taking up next week? You know, and, and then you could start at Iraq and then you could go to Central Africa and South Sudan and Israel and, and 
Gaza and all these places where there's just immense suffering. In an instant, God will put an end to all of that and he'll establish his justice for the rest of eternity. In an instant, he'll put an end to death and pain. I'll never forget when my granddad was lying in his hospital or his hospice bed in absolute agony and then we read together those words from Revelation 21. He'll wipe every tear from their eye and there'll be no more pain or suffering or sickness or death for the old order of things has passed away. In an instant, we have a hope that in an instant, it'll be gone. Pain, death, gone. There'll be a reward. Jesus said, here I am and my reward is with me. I don't know what that means really, but I'm, I know it'll be good. For those of us who, you know, if there's any part of our lives where we've sought to honour God and, and reflect him to the world around us, he'll say, well done. And then he'll complete the process of fixing all of our brokenness and all of our sinfulness and all of our selfishness. All of the things that we wrestle with we'll be no longer wrestling with because we'll be perfected. And then he'll come and he'll be with us forever. There'll never be a moment where we think, where has God gone? That's our hope. I came across this quote this week from um, Mother Teresa of Calcutta and it's already gone in as number one in my favourite quotes of all time. I don't know whether you know but uh, Mother Teresa suffered with severe depression her whole life uh, and she lived very often with a sense that God had abandoned her uh, and, and rarely had any sense of the presence of God whatsoever and she said this, in the light of heaven the worst suffering on earth, a life full of the most atrocious tortures on earth will be seen to be no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel that's our hope that's our hope and the last thing is he delights in us verse 14 he gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own is what it says in the NIV Actually, the Greek word that's translated as his very own is the word periousios. You'll never remember that. I'll never remember that after this morning. But it means a kind of something that's highly treasured, deliberately and specifically chosen. It means an object of absolute infinite delight. It's the word actually that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Whenever God says to his people, you're my treasured possession." I remember when my wife Taryn went into labour for the first time, uh, as is usually my sense of timing, I was 200 miles away and a man from Halfords was fitting a CD player into my car. And so even when I got the call to say that she'd gone into labour, even then I had to wait for the man to finish doing what he was doing to my car before I could get in the car and drive. And then obviously I drove at 69 and a half miles an hour all the way to the hospital uh, or to actually she was at home uh, um, with her parents and uh, her mother, my mother-in-law was giving me you know updates all the way and then we got there we jumped in the midwife's car um, my wife's waters broke in the back of the, her car and I was just thinking the other day we never apologised to the poor lady for ruining the back of her car anyway uh, then uh, it was a, quite a shock, you know, and pretty exhausting for me. Uh, and then, uh, it's a little joke. And then, 
But at the end of all of that horror, to be honest, at the end of all of that horror, a baby was born. And in that moment, it was like there was an explosion of love and delight and, and joy and pride. And it was like, I, I didn't even know really what love was in a certain sense until my own son, my firstborn son, was in my arms. And the truth that we need to receive today is that you're God's delight. I mean, in fact, I would say, you know, that the truth that we're to receive is, is that I'm the object of God's affection and he delights in me. But unfortunately, it's sort of ruined a bit by the fact that he delights in you as well. It's a little joke. Um, <laughs> It's bad when you've got to say, that's a joke, at the end of what you say, otherwise people don't laugh. That shows it's not really funny. Anyway, um, he delights in my jokes. If I could just ever so gently just finish with this. You know, actually, it's not that we are treasured persons, that, that, that we are persons of God's delight. It's actually that we are a people of God's delight. And I know lots of us experience frustration about the, the church or pain or church has been difficult or it's, you know, it's maybe not what we always hope it would be, but God loves it. And in fact, even though probably, you know, this church that we're in is my favorite, well, it is my favourite, uh, uh, and I like it all. I like how we do it all, and, and probably most of it is my preference about how I would choose to do church. Um, and, do you know, there are loads of great churches in Aberdeen, uh, and lots of them do church in a way that isn't my preference. You know, and I could go there for a little while, and after a while I'd be a bit like, yeah, it's nice, but it's, it's not how I would choose to do church. Do you know, God doesn't really care about style. It might not be to my taste, but it's to his. He loves it all. He loves it all. And maybe the danger is for us as Christians that we, we think that what we're doing is, is the real way, the true way, the proper way, and, and the way that they do it in other churches is not really quite right. I don't think Jesus is worried. Let's stand, Shereen. And of course, the truth is that we all wrestle with all kinds of things. And all of us have got character flaws and, and uh, insecurities and, and places where we fall short, places where we have fallen short. Why do we just bring those all to Jesus right now?